Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am your co-host Christopher Hurtado, and with me my co-host Ben Peterson. Hello, Ben. Hey, Christopher. It's good to be back with you. Today we're covering Jeremiah 30 through the end. What is that, 52? Is that right? 52. Mm-hmm. 52. And all of Lamentations. Five chapters. Yeah. This is exciting. Now, Jeremiah, just to give an overview, Ben, not much changes from the first, I'll call it the first half of Jeremiah, the 1 through 29 we covered last time, and the second half. Although, in talking with you before recording, last week you said Jeremiah was really different from Isaiah, maybe more angry. Maybe his tone is is angry. His tone is different than Isaiah's. This week, you felt like he was a lot like Isaiah, right? Yeah, I definitely felt it more in these chapters. But I think one commentator put it well. He said, you know, Jeremiah is a pessimist or a realist, depending on your perspective, right? But, you know, he writes pessimistically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, in that way, he's maybe a little bit different in tone from Isaiah. But at the same time, they're saying the same things. And in this week's chapters... Jeremiah does the same thing that Isaiah did last time after giving oracles to God's people, right? Whether it be the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, others, even Moab that's somehow related to the Israelites. He also stands, and last time I called it standing in one place and facing all the cardinal points and issuing oracles. This time the image that came to my mind was a sprinkler. Yeah, going around (laughs) spraying everyone. (laughs) Yeah, he sort of has oracles for everyone. It's funny because Babylon, he says, is going to carry you guys off. And he even tells people to go with the Babylonians. Just go. Accept it. You know, go with the flow. And he even gets accused because he goes off to talk to somebody and they think, oh, he's defecting to the other side and they accuse him of being on the Babylonian side. You can kind of see why they might think that. A couple of things he says could lead you to think that, right? Yeah, there's a lot of politics going on here, you know, because Zedekiah is trying to ally himself more closely with Egypt. And when Jeremiah is seen going the other direction, sneaking out of the city, then, you know, that's seen as maybe a defecting, like you said. Yeah. Then he preaches against going to Egypt and that Egypt isn't the solution. So, this is all couched in religious terms and revelatory terms, but it's highly political for the time as well. Yeah, and that's super obvious in the context. It's also interesting to note that when the exile happens, he's sort of mistakenly carried off, I guess, is how it works, and then he's brought back. Did I get that right? It's not clear to me if he's carried off. He is captured, but he is allowed to stay in Jerusalem, and he is sort of given, so to speak, to the governor of the time and and is sort of his prisoner or or something. And so he ends up having to, when a person is killed, he ends up having to run off to Egypt with the person that killed him. So, yeah, but see, even when he's a prisoner, he still gets well taken care of. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a local famine and he doesn't go hungry. So it kind of, I was thinking, I can see how it wouldn't look good 
He doesn't go off into exile. He stays under the governor that's set up by the Babylonians locally. I get why people might have thought that he was, you know... Bad optics. Yeah, bad optics. Yeah. So then what else happens? He's thrown into a pit at one point, which reminded me of what Isaiah, the second Isaiah, said about Jeremiah as the suffering servant. That's one of the things, right? That he gets thrown into a pit. In this case, it's a cistern. Now, cisterns can be 20 feet deep, something like that. The walls are plastered. There's no climbing out of there. There's no water in it. I don't know if people are imagining water in the cistern when he's thrown in there. It's not like he has to tread water or drown, but he is stuck in the mud at the bottom. There you go. That that tells you, right? There's no water. He's stuck in the mud at the bottom. He can't climb out. He's basically imprisoned, right? There's, there's no fooling around. This reminds me of Joseph when his brothers throw him in the pit, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's see, Ben. Anything else in terms of an overview before we go into it, you know, sort of in order for Jeremiah? The big deal here that's going on and has been going on for many books so far is the exile. And this is another point when the history actually covers it. The text actually goes into what happens during the exile history-wise. And this is a seminal moment within Jewish history. It's the great catastrophe. It's this horrific, this unimaginable tragedy of the exile. And then to add to that, which is probably an even bigger deal, the destruction of the temple and the carrying off of all of the sacred artifacts or you know pieces from the temple that are melted down or, or destroyed in some way. And so, they never get back to what they had before. When we did the episode on Ezra and Nehemiah of the return, when they come back and they start building the second temple, there's a point where they're sitting there and they're laying the foundation and there is this huge uproar of the people and it's like half of them, which are the younger generation, are just cheering and crying for joy because this temple that they've never seen before but they've heard so much about is finally being rebuilt. And the older generation that maybe saw it when they were little, the older, older people, they are crying for sorrow because they're realizing that this temple that's being built is not as big, not as grandiose as Solomon's temple, and they're realizing that's never going to be the same again. It's this very interesting moment of great elation and also pain and trauma and sorrow that happens at the same time. So I'm just thinking about this moment in Jeremiah when all of this comes to pass, right? And then we're going to get into Lamentations, which is these poems about this grieving and mourning and sorrow over this incident and it becomes canonized and then used in liturgical practices recited every year as a way of commemorating, remembering, a day of mourning for this event. And then that becomes put together with the destruction of the second temple as well in 70 AD by the Romans. And you have this great moment of tragedy all commemorated in this day of mourning where Lamentations is recited. You know what you said about the lamentation, not the book of lamentations, although the book of lamentations is about the lamentation we speak of, but the, the lament of the people thinking politically, it's not just about the temple, right? The temple represents, you know, that glory of Solomon that you were hinting mm -hmm. at. It's Solomon. It's the public works, including the temple. It's who and what Israel is that we also get prophecies of a unification of the, of the Israelites, right? Because we have the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom. When there's a return, there's supposed to be a unification too. And you reminded me, there's one other thing that, that happens in this week's reading, and that is there's a third exile. 
Right. So that's the overview. And we'll go into Lamentations too, of course, and, and talk about the importance of mourning and how that's used liturgically and how we might use it ourselves. When we get into the chapters of Jeremiah, like we said, we're covering 30 through 52 today. This goes into a little bit more of the historical context of what's going on at the time, but also has some more of the same, so to speak, of what we've already read previously in Jeremiah. So the concept of the theology of Deuteronomy is the idea that sin leads to divine punishment and exile. And so all of the prophecies and pronouncements upon the people and then political arguments that happen between Jeremiah and all the kings and and the people themselves are all really centered around this idea that their sin is what is going to cause all of these future tragedies. And then the assertion that all of the things that did happen are because of their sins against God. And that becomes kind of nuanced in a particular way. And then there's an interesting sort of discussion and argument between the people and Jeremiah over really what it is that caused the problem. And this theology that you speak of, Ben, this is what we've called in past episodes, bad theology. And this is following John Dominic Crossan. And the point is, the context of these kingdoms of Israel, the northern and the southern kingdom, right? They are surrounded by empires and they're in the way of getting to where those empires want to get, whether it's because they're expanding. Why are they expanding? Of course, there's more territory in general terms, whatever it is that the, the resources that they want. But of course, access to the Mediterranean is part of it. They're at the crossroads of three continents. They are. Yeah, yeah. This is, they're in the crosshairs of empire too, right? That's the thing. And so what's going to happen is they're going to be invaded. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's impossible that if they had repented that they wouldn't have been invaded. Although I find it highly unlikely personally, you know, just thinking about how these things work, but certainly it's most likely the case that if you're surrounded by empires and expansion and you're the little guy, you're going to get conquered. There's also back and forth, right? Because Egypt is invaded by Babylon, but then Babylon it doesn't actually take Egypt, but then they do. And then the tables turn. This is how it goes, right? <laughs> yeah. And there's definitely different ways to posit this. If we look at this philosophically, you know, we could take a stoic sort of approach and say, look, whether it happens or not isn't the question of sin, right? The question of sin in this context is how do we respond to it? How do we process it? How do we contextualize it? How do we deal with this as a people? And the I think the idea here is that if the Deuteronomist view is that the sin of the people is what caused the actual invasion and conquering of the people, a maybe somewhat better way to look at this is, well, the sin of the people is what caused them to not be able to handle or respond to the situation in the best, most appropriate or healing or or useful way, right? Yeah, that reminds me of some Book of Mormon stories where maybe if they had been with it, they could have been inspired to build whatever walls or woodworks or what have you, right? Those kind of those kind of things. Sure. And then there's the Book of Mormon story of the people of Alma who were righteous, but they were put in bondage anyway. And they went through all of these hardships and the Lord did deliver them, but it was after a certain amount of time, right? And so you can take any given situation 
within history or your own life experience it. And you can explain it in whatever way fits your worldview and your theology. And we're actually going to get into that when we talk about an argument that Jeremiah has with the people about what caused the problem, because the people's view in the discussion that he has with them is that, well, it's actually the fact, Jeremiah, that Josiah destroyed all the high places and all of our groves and wouldn't let us sacrifice to the Queen of Heaven. And if you look at when that happened, Jeremiah, now we're being invaded by Babylon. That's the cause because we're not right. sacrificing to the Queen of Heaven. And so it uses the same argument, right? In terms of like yes. effect and cause. And from Jeremiah's standpoint, it's just a theological assertion. But when you look at it like from a logical point of view, there's not a whole lot of difference in the argument. Yeah, this reminds me of, I think I mentioned this last time, of Joan Didion's We Tell Ourselves Stories in Order to Live. I don't think we can help it. You know, something's happening. We have to explain it somehow. This is happening for a reason. Right? Yeah. Everything happens for a reason. I go to bookstores and I see books that say everything happens for a reason. I take pictures of them and send them to Shiloh and I say, yeah, sometimes the reason is you did something really stupid. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's this book. I can think of a book title. I can't remember the author. I haven't read it yet. It says everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. I can't believe I haven't read that yet. The title is really apropos, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, there's stories that we tell ourselves. Shiloh and I had a great conversation on our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation, on the stories we tell ourselves. I think that's what we called it. So I would say, Christopher, the other issue with this theological approach, at least the Deuteronomist idea, is when we get into these descriptions of what happens with the sack and the destruction of Jerusalem, we get really disturbing and gruesome things like the, you know, the murder of children, the rape of, of girls, and just all these horrible things. And if we, if we accept whole cloth, the explanation, the Deuteronomist explanation that every single thing that happened was ordained and purposed and instrumented and carried out by God through Babylon, right? Then we have to posit that these are things that God wants. Or at least that he would countenance. Yeah. And and sometimes you get the statement that, well, it's it's for your own good, right? Oh, yeah. In the divine economy, you know, yeah. he knows in the end, it's for everybody's good or for his glory. Depends on who you're asking. I was reading some evangelical exegesis and everything, you know, you just accept what the Bible says at face value without considering that who wrote this has their own worldview and their own understanding of how things work based on their time and place, their context, right? and that we don't have to accept that. Maybe we know God better. Maybe God has revealed himself further, for example, in Jesus Christ, right? and maybe beyond that for you. Right. That has been sort of the theme of the approach that we've been trying to take, especially with the Old Testament, is stepping away from this literalist or fundamentalist, I guess is the better way to describe it, approach to the scriptures such that it requires us to accept these bad theological descriptions of who God is and how we're supposed to relate with him when they directly contradict our experience and desires to have faith in a God that Jesus Christ teaches to us. Right. And who who shows himself in the person of Jesus Christ and his true character. 
And again, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we're saying that Jesus Christ, that one and the same person is Yahweh. Now, once again, the Deuteronomists, they're religious reformers. There was El, the father. There was Asherah, his consort. There was Yahweh, the son. They got rid of Asherah, no more divine feminine. They got rid of the son and they gave the name of the son to the father. Mm -hmm. And so he's the only God now, Yahweh. On the other hand, Ben, switching gears, the prophets also, when I say the prophets, I mean so far Isaiah, Jeremiah, second Isaiah we've covered. They are also telling us that in whatever's going to happen, fear not, God is with you. Yeah. So whatever happens, fear not, God is with you. That's always true. Yeah. God is already always with you. And living out of fear is the opposite of living out of love. Living out of love for God and your fellow man is a way of living that is fearless. It's a way of living that is free of fear. It's not easy, right? Because things show up. And really what happens is, and I think this is where Buddhism has something to offer, it's we have preferences. We would rather not be invaded. We would rather not be carried off into exile. And when these things happen, we're disappointed and we're fearful and we're angry and whatnot, right? The idea here is no matter what happens, God is with you. You need not fear. And so if you can just love what is, again, not easy, then nothing's wrong. You discover nothing's wrong. And so there's a restoration. And so you see how this restoration happens? It's something that we are co-creators of with God. When we trust him, when we act out of love and we don't act out of fear, then we are bringing that restoration into being. That concept of accepting what is, you know, forgiving reality or you and Riley just did a podcast on this a bit a bit ago, Amor Fati, right? Yes. That's difficult because, you know, when we get to something like Lamentations, where we have these enormous tragedies that you don't see how you can go on from them, right? You don't see how you can get past those. You don't see how you can accept those. Well, I'm sitting here, you know, preaching and I'm having a hard time accepting <laughs> the reality of my back pain every right. day. Right. I have a preference not to have back pain and I have to remind myself, and I get pretty desperate sometimes, I get depressed, you know, and I have to remind myself this too will pass. And that's the importance of things like what we have, the examples we have in Lamentations of, of the mourning and the sorrow that allow us to process these things, allow us to approach, to go in the direction of accepting reality and, and moving forward. And there are some beautiful moments in Jeremiah where, as we've said multiple times, God peeks through the cracks and we'll mention some of those. I've, I've noticed some of them as reading through also in Lamentations. And so that's where we, we see these moments where God peeks through those cracks, where he's revealed, where we can see his face, so to speak. It doesn't, like we said, require that we accept this Deuteronomist theology or worldview just because that is the way, the dominant way or the predominant way that is written into some of the scripture and maybe how some of the prophets viewed things and preached it to the people. Remember, too, scripture is not the text itself, these sacred texts that we're reading and talking about, but rather the way that we read them and the way that we relate to them and the way that we relate to others who read them in the same way we do. Right. And they don't have to be read the way that, that we're reading them. They can be read in other ways. And it's, it's really an eye opener, you know, to step away from the, the literal reading to the, well, not only to the allegorical reading, but even the literal reading, even to look at, say, those parts that are historical, right? Here we're reading some prophets, 
the same period of history that that they're covering is also covered in other books in the Bible because those are chronicles of kings. These are prophecies. And then there's, again, the idea that Deuteronomy may have come, actually been written, if not rediscovered or discovered in the, the ruins of the temple, as was claimed at the time, to to give a justification for doing things the way that the religious reformers we call Deuteronomists want us to do things. And, and so that we can, you know, so that we can not go into exile again. And you have, even in Jesus's time where he brings a different message and a different way of reading things, again, full of, you know, the, the New Testament authors have lots and lots of citations from the Old Testament. And yet, the interpretations are different, and we continue in the restoration to reinterpret these things, and we do it for our own time. Chapter 31, verse 6, has this phrase. I'm going to read just all of verse 6. It says, For there shall be a day when sentinels will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. These phrases, or this phrase, come, let us go up, this phrase is actually usually used in the context of rallying troops for war. It's a plural come and a plural let us, obviously. And in this context, though, it's used to call the people to worship, to go up to the house of the Lord. And so when I was reading this and looking at some of the, the commentary about how this, where this phrase comes from, it's been repurposed in a religious or in a worship context. So I just thought that was interesting because it evoked to me the phrase from Isaiah, you know, swords to plowshares, that this, this imagery used in war has been repurposed for a peaceful worship practice as opposed to a war practice. Isn't that interesting? And that Zion is Mount Zion, right? So Mount Zion is a mount in Jerusalem. And it's the Temple Mount, right? So if we say Zion, what we mean is we could mean the Mount, we could mean the Temple, we could mean Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So in the next verse, you have that Israel is designated as the Lord's firstborn. And that's, a, of course, a designation of election. We can compare with Exodus 4.22. What we're saying here is it, this is just like the, the conversation we had about the suffering servant, right? The suffering servant is Israel. The New Testament authors are going to say the suffering servant is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Here, the firstborn is Israel. The New Testament authors are going to say the firstborn is Jesus. They're both right. In this context, where we are in Isaiah or Jeremiah, the suffering servant is Jeremiah for second Isaiah. The firstborn is Israel. Of course, when I say the suffering servant is Jeremiah, I mean personified. Really, it's Israel, which would be, again, personified. That could be Jacob. Just as we covered last week, right? There, there's just different ways of reading this. And so I thought that really stood out to me that, that Israel is designated the firstborn. In verse 15, Christopher, we get this phrase that's quoted in the New Testament. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So, there's a particular context to this within Jeremiah talking about what's going to happen with the, you know, the sack of the city and, and everything. But when we get to the New Testament, this is taken and used to talk about when the children are all killed by Herod in an attempt to try to kill Jesus. So there's the slaughter of the babies. And so this phrase is evoked from the Old Testament as being fulfilled within Jesus's time when 
it's kind of a proof texting because when you go back in the context, it's like, well, it's it's, it's not talking about that at all. It's talking about the exile and, and the destruction of Jerusalem. I thought it was interesting to note too, in connection with that in the next verse, and this is the end of a poem, a woman encompasses a man. And this is subject to interpretation, right? And different translations too. It could mean, and I'm reading here from an NRSV study Bible from HarperCollins. Yours is from Oxford, right? I've never asked you if we have the same footnotes. We have the same translation, but different right, footnotes. Different footnotes, cool. So you have a woman protects a man. That's one translation or interpretation. The woman woos the man. The woman sets out to find her husband again. The woman must encompass the man with devotion. And a woman is turned into a man. These are all different possible interpretations from different translations that are possible of this verse. And so the NRSV translation in particular seems to suggest two possibilities, either a reversal of traditional roles where the woman who could be Israel embraces the man who could be God. We could look at it that way. Or contrasting with Rachel, bereaved of her children, the virgin Israel will bear a son, Hmm. a posterity, right? There's going to be a future for Israel. That's interesting that you mentioned that verse, Christopher, because I had a note and I wrote translation with a question mark. And usually I write that when like, hey, I want to ask Christopher what Alter has to say about this verse. <laughs> You're welcome. And and this isn't from Alter, but yeah. but yes, that, that's what I found on that verse. So great minds think alike, Ben. The next, you know, verse that I wanted to go into a little bit is there's a lot here in chapter 31. There right? is. There is. Yeah. The the words and thoughts that show up in chapters 29 through 30. I have a footnote that says they're borrowed from Ezekiel. So now we haven't gotten to Ezekiel yet. And now this suggests that Ezekiel comes or is written before Jeremiah. Hmm. We'll have to cover this again when we talk about Ezekiel, right? That's interesting. The next thing for me would be verses 31 through 34, which is an explanation of this quote-unquote new covenant, right? The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is the scripture that's evoked by, again, the New Testament writers to talk about when Jesus is coming and he's the bearer of the new covenant, so to speak, right? And that's actually why we have these terms, Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, comes from these verses right here where God says, or the prophet Jeremiah says, we are going to have a new covenant with God. And it's not going to be like the old one. It's going to be a new one because we broke the old one. And so God has to give us a new one. To me, it's not clear what is really meant by that. If that's meant that the people are going to have a new covenant, but it's is it going to be different in nature? Or is it essentially the old one just renewed? Because when we get to Jesus's time, right, with the Pharisees, they're all still saying, well, the law of Moses, the law of Moses, the instruction within the Torah. And so it's not clear to me what is really meant or interpreted by Jewish tradition as the new covenant. What is the new covenant within the Jewish thought and tradition? I don't know, Ben. I was going to Aver and answer before you said in the Jewish tradition. You were saying, what's an interpretation or what's, how do you, how do we understand this first? And I would like to aver my own answer, right? I don't know how it's interpreted in that tradition. I think when I think about what the covenant is, what it means, it's about relatedness. God again is trying to marry us, right? So this covenant and that kind of 
metaphor, you could say it's an engagement, right? The covenant is, and if the, if you break off the engagement and you still want to get married, what do you do? You re-engage, right? right? And so you have this new covenant. And the point is God wants to be related to us, right? Hmm. Or us to be related to him. Yeah. Now in the very next verse, and we're talking about cutting a covenant, and that's actually explained. Of course, it was explained back in Genesis. It's also explained here in Jeremiah. Yes. Maybe that, that'll Chapter come 34. Up later. Yeah. But it was interesting to me that there's a valley mentioned. It's a valley of dead bodies and ashes. This is likely the valley of Hinnom, which is known as Gehenna, which is hell. This is the actual place that's meant that we translate hell. It's actually in the text that says Gehenna. And so this is a place where child sacrifice was practiced. It was a place where if you want weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and things like this and, and burning, right? This constant burning. It's the place where the trash was burned and where dogs fought over scraps, right? The, the gnashing of teeth and the weeping and the wailing could have something to do with the child sacrifice. This is the Valley of Hinnom again, Gehenna, likely, right? It says it's a mm-hmm. dead bodies. What is it about a Valley of dead bodies and ashes? There was one thing in 32. That stood out as particularly interesting. And that's over in verse 14. So verse 14 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. When I read that, I was like, oh, Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So I went and verified because I had remembered that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in large clay jars. And sure enough, that was true. I was remembering correctly that that was how these documents, when they're stored for a long time, especially in dry environments, they would keep and preserve very well within earthenware jars. In fact, those Dead Sea Scrolls lasted in there for over 2,000 years, right? Yeah. Did you go to the cave where they were found? I did not. Okay. So, you, between the two of us, we've probably been to all the places <laughs> yeah. in the Bible, but maybe not- You know, I've not been to Israel- Palestine. I've been to Jordan, but oh, not. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I've been everywhere in the Bible and except for, I think, Mount Sinai, where you said you have been. been there. Yeah. And those caves, you know, that's near Qumran, right? Mm-hmm. Near the Dead Sea. Somewhere, I can't remember if we were in Israel or Jordan, Palestine, somewhere in there, right? In what used to be called Greater Syria. Yeah. Or, well, it depends on when, right? It used to be called ancient Israel too, right? <laughs> so you have these caves where somebody hid these things, right? And they just, they were there until some little boys. I had to actually crouch down to get in there. You know, some little boys were playing, shepherd boys, playing in the caves and found them. Yeah, somebody like threw a rock and they heard this crash, like something breaking. And so right. they went one and of the saw pl- that one of the, the pots. pots or- yeah. So anyway, I just thought that was sort of this little this little point in the text where we could see, oh, you know, that was a common practice for them to store things that way. And sure enough, one of the greatest archaeological finds of the past hundred years is these Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's where they were found in earthenware jars. So there are a few things in this chapter that stood out to me, Ben. The historical context again, around 588 BC, right? You have the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadrezzar? Yeah, there's a lot of different Nebuchadnezzar, and I can't keep them all straight. <laughs> yeah. So, in, in my family, in, in my house, you know, we say, if you mispronounce something, we actually look up to you because we know that you learned it from reading. <laughs> so, this is when Jeremiah is imprisoned for 
attempting to leave the city, right? He wants to go to Anathoth because there's a temporary lift of the siege. He makes a break. And then they say he was deserting, right? Oh, you were going over to the enemy. Zedekiah accuses him of treason and even insurrection. And so that's one of the, the episodes that stood out to me in this, this week's reading. And it's interesting too, because while he's, while he's in the, in prison, right? He's actually able to purchase a field. And he actually, when I say he's able to, what I mean by that is I think this shows us that he's well to do, right? He's, he has the means even when he's in prison to, to transact property. And on the other hand, it also shows us his faith because he's buying property when he's prophesying there's going to be an exile, but he's also saying there's going to be a return from exile. He's putting his money where his mouth is, mm. right? Him buying right. that property shows us that he really believes what he's saying. At least if there is an exile, that there will be a return, right? Yeah. Uh, Jeremiah obviously is hardcore in the camp of you know, do what Babylon says and things will go better for us and very antagonistic towards anybody that disagrees with that politically. That's a good way to put it, Ben. I see that. So, 33 has this discussion in verses 8 and 9 about guilt. He says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. This is speaking of guilt in collective terms. A lot of what's going on here in Jeremiah is a very collectivist approach, right? There's not individuals who are punished for their sin. It's the entire people who are punished for the sins of maybe not the entire people, but at least a good part of the people. This is a collective guilt and then a collective punishment that's taking place here. One of the points that was brought out in the book that we both read, Christopher, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, was this idea I was just that, thinking about yeah, that we, at least within our modern Western idea, look at a lot of things more individualistically and that that isn't necessarily the ancient mindset there was a much more collectivist idea of, of these things. And so, if the people as a whole had done something wrong, and you know what constitutes that is, is difficult to say, but then they were guilty as a people. And so, collective punishment was a legitimate way to do that. At least that was their mindset. This came out within Leviticus as well, when we were talking about Leviticus and, and how you as a community sort of repent and, and make atonement for something as a group, a collective repentance as opposed to an individual repentance. Like I was saying, that's a little bit foreign to our modern sensibilities or, or worldview, but it's definitely comes out in the text, especially right here. And it can be a really useful approach, right? We are sort of enamored with our individualistic ideas as Americans and we abhor collectivism and, you know, collectivism leads to communism and whatnot, right? These kind of ideas pervade in our context, right? In, in America. And yet some of the most significant problems that we face as a collective, right? Hmm. Because it affects all of us and it affects, when I say all of us, I mean all of us living and those yet to come, right? Those who will come right. after us. And so we can't really deal with these significant problems that are collective problems with an individualistic mindset. On the one hand, yes, there's, you know, you do what you can in your own place, right? Lift where you stand. That's valid. On the other hand, I have to think in terms of, I can't say, well, that's not my fault. That's not my problem. That's not my sin. 
that's somebody else's sin, but we're one people. Mm -hmm. We're humans. We're all human. We're all children of God, according to our theology. So we are our brother's keeper in some sense. And so we have to think about how, in what way we are responsible or could take on responsibility for things that we didn't do, but that somebody did, and that somebody is part of our community. However you want to think of that community, you can think in, in concentric circles. And by the way, if you're thinking in concentric circles and you're reaching outward, well, then you're encompassing more and you're embracing more. And that's what I'm suggesting, right, is that we embrace all of humanity and that we'd be willing to consider taking responsibility for what is quote unquote not our fault because there are some things that nobody did, no one person did, but they were all complicit in in some way. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 33. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So for Christians, this is Jesus, right? He has fulfilled this promise that there would be a Davidic heir that executes justice and righteousness in the land. This is something that people look forward to, something that the people of Jesus' time were probably looking for somebody that would more literally fulfill this kind of deliverance from the political powers that be at the time, Rome, or at other times in different contexts, you had different types of political powers that were extant. But at least at Jesus's time, there was the idea that a Messiah would be more of a, a military hero, someone that would lead them back to their former glories and independence. And when Jesus comes and doesn't really offer that in the way that's expected, right, then we get a, a different mindset, a different way to go with this, which is a more spiritual kingdom of God versus the kingdom on earth type of thing. Well, that's how we do it, Ben. If we can't find an instantiation of a fulfillment of a prophecy, then we push it into the future or we go with multiple fulfillment, right? Right. Yeah. So what we do with Isaiah. Yeah. Whatever works with the story we're telling ourselves, right? Right. Another thing I would mention at this point, just like the book of Isaiah, the idea of Jeremiah as a book that's written by one guy named Jeremiah is not uncontroversial. Some scholars identify a total of maybe three chapters that they think Jeremiah writes. There's also parts that you can read and see for yourself that they're talking about Jeremiah in the third person. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of when the book of Moses tells us that Moses was a very humble man. Right. (laughs) And so if you think Moses wrote that, well, then there's a contradiction, right? Somebody who's humble doesn't write, I am so humble. It's, (laughs) It's my trait I'm most proud of. And then the other thing is that this stuff is not necessarily in some kind of historical order. And by that, I mean, if you have different texts coming together, then they could have been put together in an order that's not chronological. For whatever reason, the redactor had and put them that way, however he understood them, right? The other thing is the prophets themselves, if we do see, you know, here's somebody, whoever it is, writing or prophesying, and it gets written down, they're actually jumping back and forth in time. So there's both they're doing it, and there's then the possibility of the redactor doing it. And so you have to read really closely and pay, pay really close attention and of course, cross-reference, again, there's context for for this and other parts of the scriptures and the chronicles of the kings and whatnot. 
maybe again understanding the relationship between the prophets and the Deuteronomists, right? All of that comes into play. And Ben, you and I are just trying to get a handle on this, right? Yeah, sometimes I feel like I have a bit of a handle on it and other times I I don't at all. I I will say that going through this and learning at least more of the particulars of the text and how it related to the culture and the identity of the people of the time, it gave me a greater appreciation, a love for these people that are very far removed both in time and space and culture from me. And when I got to these moments in their history where they are experiencing all of this trauma and this going into exile and this great mourning, I do feel that more than I have before. Like it it became a little more real to me. And when that became a little more real to me, then all the subsequent concepts and ideas and yearning for restoration, for rebuilding the temple, for a Messiah, all of these started to make more sense to me. They started to be more real. They started to be more meaningful because I had finally established a reason why these things would be desired when I didn't I didn't quite have that as much before. I love that. In addition to what you mentioned about the Davidic monarchy being restored and whatever that means, there's also a promise of a restoration of the Levitical priesthood. That's interesting to note too. And most interesting of all, these verses, and when I say these verses, I'm talking about 14 through 26, where we're getting the future leaders, the Oracle of Salvation, as an expansion, the coming from the exile with the restoration of the Davidic monarchy and the Levitical priesthood. And all of this is not found in the Septuagint. And what that tells us, the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. And the Greek Old Testament is older, what we have, right, is older than the oldest Hebrew we have. The oldest Hebrew we have, the Masoretic text, is a translation from the Septuagint. Yeah. And so the Septuagint is older. And so what that tells us is that this stuff was added later. But do we know where it came from? Well, the Masoretes, well, or it's part of their, it's their part tradition. of what they find that they include, right? Okay. I don't think we can blame them necessarily. They just included what's, what to them is the Bible. And sometimes in the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they, they're the oldest extant manuscripts that we have, right? So they can, and what, what are they? Is it 600 BA, something like that? I wanted to say 300. I think you're right. I think it's 300 ish BCE. So they're, they're, they're pretty old in terms of what we have had and they're the oldest we have. And so they can sort of tell us to, they can help us see the difference between the Septuagint and the, the Masoretic text and they can help us see what was there, you know, what's maybe been added. But again, all of this, right? This is the way that these texts are put together. They're living texts. The idea of adding, we have that new scripture, right? Go tell an evangelical that you have a Book of Mormon and a Doctrine and Covenants that, that this is new scripture, and they'll tell you, no, this can't be. Right? You can't add to the scriptures. The Bible is the word of God, the end, right? But that's not how it was. And for us, even today, that's not how it is. Even in our tradition, we say that the words of the prophets spoken in general conference happening as we record this weekend, right, are scripture, and again, I've defined scripture as the relationship that we have to the sacred texts and with the others that have that same relationship in that same way. And so in that way, what they say is scripture. 
because the foundation of this, as, as we say, the, the cornerstone of our religion is the Book of Mormon, right? The most correct book, Joseph Smith called it. So how we relate to that text and how we read it. And, and, you know, our evangelical neighbors are right to say we are reading the Bible through the lens of the Book of Mormon. And that's how we do it. Things have to be reinterpreted over time to fit the context. Scripture is not the text. Scripture is how we read the text. You know, in chapter 34, Ben, there's something I forgot to mention when I gave the overview. There was this one other event that stood out, and that's when there's a siege and there, the, the people have been, they haven't been keeping their covenant about slavery, right? That, that, you know, that Israelites could only be kept as slaves under certain conditions, right? They covenant to release the slaves to get out of this pickle, right? They're being besieged. And then the siege is lifted. And then they just take the people back into slavery again. Yeah. It's like I'm repenting to try to avoid the consequence. And as soon as the consequence is passed, then I'll go back to my sin. Right. And isn't that just like humans? <laughs> so you have the bargaining with God. If you get me out of this, you know, I'll do this, that, and the other, whatever, you know. And then we just go right back to doing the same thing again. And then we have in verses 18 through 19 of chapter 34, as I mentioned earlier, there's an explanation of covenant making. We can compare that with Genesis 15, 7 to 21. There's something that stood out to me, Ben, in chapter 36 in the notes, right? Not really. This is in looking at my study Bible and looking at the footnotes. It's mentioned that if chapter 36 is historical, if it is historical, then we have indications of the first two editions of the book of Jeremiah. So again, this is hard to reconstruct these things, right? But scholars work on it and they find clues. And it's hard to understand. Sometimes they don't show up in translation. So what we need is scholars who go in and they learn Hebrew and they learn Greek and they go into the text. That and just reading this, you know, studying the text closely. I think, you know, in America, again, in addition to this concept of individualism that I, I don't think is entirely realistic in the way that we that we imagine it as Americans, we also have this anti-intellectualism. Isaac Asimov comments on this anti-intellectualism. He's the famous sci-fi author, right? Yeah. Anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. And the reason I mention this is because, you know, with this anti-intellectualism, we have this distrust of scholars. There are scholars who are believers. There are, in fact, philosophers. Let's talk about arguments for God's existence. Right? Philosophers make arguments, and they even make arguments for God's existence. Most of the arguments for God's existence that I've seen taken down have been taken down by believers, because they don't want you to hang your belief on a bad argument. It's not because they're not believers. Right. There are believing scholars, and, and there are also scholars who aren't believers who can still open doors for us, right? Because they're not, a lot of times we go to the text with our presuppositions, and scholars even who are believers still have to set those aside, right? To do their job. But the ones who don't have the belief, they don't have, they don't have to set anything aside. They can just look at the text as it is. And so all of that counts, and, and we're availing ourselves of the best scholarship, whether LDS or non-LDS, of course, of whatever we can get our hands on that that helps us read the text nonviolently, and anything that can help us understand the deeper symbolic meanings of the text, which again, where else, what else can you do? This is how we read the Bible these days, mm -hmm. right? especially as Christians. The Assyrians are not going to invade us. Yeah. We're far removed in time and space from this. 
the Babylonians are not going to invade us. So the text becomes irrelevant unless we read it symbolically. And so we go to the allegorical readings that are possible. And you can do this too. This is why, you know, we read the text and whatever happens that happens between the lines for us is true. It's true for us. So in chapter 37, we find the story that I mentioned when I gave the overview, which is where Jeremiah, when the siege is lifted, he tries to go out to talk to somebody and he gets accused of defecting, right? Going over to the enemy. Then I only have one comment on chapter 38. And that's, we haven't come across anything like this in a while, or we haven't mentioned it. I haven't noticed it, but we have a name, Ebed Melech. Mm. That's not a name, right? So this is the servant, right? Literally, the word says servant of the king. Yeah, Ebed Melech. <laughs> yeah. We've mentioned this before, right? Earlier, especially in Genesis, there are a lot of names like that. And then it's interesting to note in chapter 39 that there's a slightly different account between, you can compare 39 verses 11 through 14 with chapter 40, the first six verses, and you get a different account of Jeremiah's release from prison. This is something we see happen in the Bible all the time too. Yeah, we have multiple sources that have been redacted, put together. Often they'll be woven into a story to make it look like it's one continuous story. But when you see those repetitive things, you think, oh yeah, this is two different versions of the same story. I mentioned a third exile, Ben, carried out in 582 BCE. And I think you can read about that in 5230, right? Chapter 52, verse 30. I remember saying to you, Ben, before we read that, I wish the, you know, the standard works published by our church had dates for the Bible. They have mm. dates for the Book of Mormon. They don't yeah. have dates for the Bible. Yeah, it would of course, be helpful. Of course, let's put it this way. Try to put your own dates. You'll learn a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll read it from the King James Version. In the three and twentieth year, of Nebuchadrezzar, Nebuzar Aden, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. And so that's 582 BCE. That's the third exile. And it reminded me of one more thing to say about these ancient texts to add to what we said earlier about how the way that they're written has to do with the context of the people who wrote them and is not necessarily true or applicable to us. And that one more thing that we can say about all the horrible things that, that happened that those who read this literally have to say God somehow countenances, right? Is that things were exaggerated. Now, of course, if we're having heinous acts committed against women and children, I'm going to feel uncomfortable whether the number is large or small, but the mm -hmm. fact is the numbers are exaggerated. So that's not an apology. My apology is rather, again, I'm not okay with the smaller numbers. I'm saying my apology is, just because an ancient Near Eastern author thought that God did these things doesn't mean that God did these things. The next thing, Christopher, for me is in chapter 42, and this goes along with some things from chapter 44, so I'm going to bring those kind of all together into one point here. Okay. So I'm going to read from verses 19 and 20 in chapter 42. Jeremiah speaking, The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Be well aware that I have warned you today that you have made a fatal mistake. For you yourselves sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and whatever the Lord our God says, tell us, and we will do it. So I have told you today, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God in anything that he sent me to tell you. 
Be well aware, then, that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go and settle. So they don't listen. They go to Egypt. And then Jeremiah writes them a letter, essentially, to those that are in Egypt. And that is chapter 44. And when we go to 44, we're going to go over to verses 12 through 14. This says, I will take the remnant of Judah who are determined to come to the land of Egypt to settle, and they shall perish. Everyone in the land of Egypt they shall fall. By the sword and by famine they shall perish. From the least to the greatest they shall die by the sword and by famine, and they shall become an object of execration and horror, of cursing and ridicule. So down to 14, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to settle in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah. Although they long to go back to live there, they shall not go back except some fugitives. So then the people respond to Jeremiah and here's what they say. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. Instead, we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out libations to her just as we and our ancestors, our kings and our officials, used to do in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. We used to have plenty of food and prospered and saw no misfortune. But from the time we stopped making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, we have lacked everything and have perished by the sword and by famine. You see, that's what did it. Okay. So we have an interesting argument going on here. And from my perspective, Jeremiah isn't coming out on top. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, he does in terms of his record being the one that survives, right? (laughs) Right. But Jeremiah tells them not to go to Egypt. They're going to die there if they go. That actually doesn't really end up happening. I mean, there is a pogrom, like a purge of Jews, but that doesn't happen till like the second century BC, late second century. One thing, Ben, there was an invasion of Egypt by Hmm. Nebuchadnezzar in 568 to 567 BC. And, you know, he fought against the Pharaoh Amasis. We don't know really how that battle turned out. We don't know the outcome of it. But mm-hmm. Babylonia did not conquer Egypt. So they invaded, yeah. but they didn't conquer. Yeah. So, you know, Jeremiah tells him not to go there, that it would it's going to be bad for him. But actually, the Jews going to Egypt, they end up having a pretty strong community there. They're the ones that several centuries later end up doing the translation of the Septuagint, right? There's there's scattered communities throughout Egypt of Jews. Jeremiah himself ends up having to go there, not of his own will, right? He's taken there, and I believe he even dies in Egypt. Wait, now he goes to Egypt? He, he's starting to look like Forrest Gump, <laughs> right? I mean, he's everywhere. Yeah. He is. He's everywhere. He's in the middle yeah, of the action. Yeah, yeah, he's always there where the action is. That's right. I just thought this was interesting in terms of We have these prophecies of Jeremiah that survived, but we can't see that they actually happened the way that he described. Now, certainly there's going to be people that would go back and and try to pick out, oh, well, this happened this way and this happened this way. But the discussion here, you know, between Jeremiah and these people that that comes up later is – is that of a theological one where Jeremiah is saying, hey, all these things happened because you worshiped these other gods. And these people are saying, actually, they didn't nope. happen until we stopped worshiping these other gods. <laughs> nope. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, again, I, I think this, this underscores the idea that, that again, there's a, the fundamental theological difference here. And it shows how these events can be explained in many different ways, depending on 
someone's worldview and their theology. And the best part of it, it's right there in the text. <laughs> exactly. It's right, it's there, right in there, the there in the text. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think they're, I think they're both wrong together. And it just goes to show you too, we, again, we're telling ourselves a story about what's happening. What's happening is just happening. I mean, again, the Buddhists know this. It's just happening. Nothing's wrong. <laughs> and we tell ourselves these stories and we have certain attachments and even the Stoics and in the Western tradition spoke out against having attachments and, and taught, you know, taught loving what is in the same way that, that Buddhists did. I've often wondered if there's some kind of connection there. You know, us, we just tend to do this thing where we, not just us, them and us, right? We tend to do this thing where we confuse correlation with causality. It is true that they stopped praying and then this happened, or they did pray and then this happened. But why? I don't know. <laughs> because yeah. the empires wanted to expand. They wanted resources, power, wealth, access to the Mediterranean, etc. I think that's why it happened personally. But I think, you know, still in telling ourselves these stories, I don't know, you know, it, is, is everything okay? Nothing's wrong. Our tradition teaches in, in one sense, you know, and I don't think there's a contradiction necessarily with Buddhism. I think there's a misunderstanding maybe, but our tradition teaches that you shouldn't be complacent. You know, all is well in Zion is not the way to go, right? In fact, that mm -hmm. harks back to that Zion means Jerusalem, right? Zion is a mount in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. It's a, a way to talk about the city itself and to say all is well in Jerusalem, therefore Zion, as Jerusalem goes back to this time, right, that we're talking about, where some people thought, no, we don't have to worry about anything. The prophets say, look, we're going to be invaded. You're going to be taken away captive into exile. And they say, no, all is well in Zion. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, again, no contradiction in my mind, only maybe a misunderstanding. On the other hand, fear not. God is with you. So you go from here to there, but God is with you whether you're here or there. Yeah. So it seems in a sense, nothing's wrong. And you get to come back and there's a restoration. And I, and I talked about how we make that restoration happen, how we, we co-create that restoration with God in the same way that we co-create so much of, of our, you know, our families and of the order of the world, which again, we could think of as the, if we say cosmos, it's the order of the universe, right? The order of things, the nature of, of the socially constructed reality that we live in. And, you know, on top of the, the metaphysically given, there's a socially constructed reality that we've created. And you have here, you know, some of these, again, the Deuteronomists, the reformers, any reformer, any anyone pushing for social change, these prophets, right? Talking about social justice, they're looking to change the order of things, the way things work, the socially constructed reality. Because in real reality, Ben, there's plenty for everyone. In our tradition, in the Western tradition, I know you know this, Ben, John Locke, right? He says, here, you know, if I have a right to my life, and therefore, I mix my labor with the land, and now the fruit of the labor that I mix with the land is mine. The land, even, he says. That's the interesting thing. Uh -huh. He says you have now property in the land. About 800 years earlier, in the Islamic tradition, around 800, you have a natural law thinker who's saying, God has created enough for everybody, and everybody can take whatever they need. And you can take as much as you want, as long as you don't take so much that there's not enough for everybody else. Right. Yeah. God provides, right? He provides for all of our needs. There's plenty. But greed, greed gets in the way, doesn't it? And we see lots of greed here. There's definitely greed going on. That's one of the things that Jeremiah is speaking out against. They're human. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. 
So in chapter 46, we get this collection of oracles against all the nations that surround Israel, or at least that surround Jerusalem, where our prophet is speaking from. Last time when I talked about Isaiah doing this, I said he's facing all the cardinal points and issuing oracles. This time I'm saying it's like a sprinkler, right? You just rotate and you send out the oracles to all the surrounding countries, but it's the same idea, right? <laughs> he, yeah. he has something to say for all of them. So in 46, 13 through 26, there's an oracle that actually supposes that Jeremiah predicts an invasion of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar. But again, Nebuchadnezzar, he does invade, but he doesn't conquer. And we can compare again with chapter 43 and even Ezekiel 29. So again, we'll have to put Ezekiel in sort of on the timeline with Jeremiah and mm-hmm. Isaiah, first and second Isaiah, when we get there. I noted that Apis is the Egyptian god of fertility worship in Memphis yeah. as a sacred Apis. bull. Yeah, the bull. Yeah, and so the, the bull got my attention just because of the calf. You know, again, the idea that you would represent your, you know, god in that way is not strange, right, to the setting, to the ancient Near Eastern setting. In verses 25 through 26, there's a later commentary on those two oracles. So you have Ammon, an Egyptian sun god, and his temple is in Karnak in Thebes. And I just, that got my attention because among all the places in the Bible that you and I have been, Karnak is one of them. And that yeah. really was impressive, Ben, you know, to see on the walls, murals painted on the walls where you can see everything what you've experienced in the temple right there on mm-hmm. the walls of this yeah. ancient temple in Thebes. It's really something. And then there's the Felucca rides. Don't, don't, don't miss the Felucca. I missed the Felucca ride. It was, it was either a Felucca ride or Skype my wife. I Skyped my wife. <laughs> in 48, I noted that in verses 1 through 47, so the whole chapter, right? Yeah, the whole chapter. You have extensive borrowings from Isaiah the first, right? 15 through 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so extensive borrowings so that we see this kind of thing, right? Prophets quoting other prophets. Sure. Right. Or, yeah, I mean, right, borrowing, exactly, you know, the quote, yeah, quoting the same words, right? There are some verses in chapter 48 that are missing in the Septuagint. Again, this is an indication that they were added later. That's verses 45 through 47. In chapter 49, again, I just noted, you know, that Amun is, I don't know if you knew this, Ben, Amun is modern Amen. Amun, yeah. Yeah. And so that would be the capital of different Jordan Different from today. the Egyptian Amun. Right. That's a different thing. Yeah, that's right. But the people of Ammon, that's where Amen comes from. Yeah. And here in chapter 49, we also have some verses that aren't in the Septuagint, once again, indicating that they were added later. Those would be, that would be verse 49.6, just one verse. So it's interesting to me when that happens, right? When they're different, when the Septuagint is missing something that we find in the Masoretic text, that tells us then we're reading something that was added later since this text comes later. Now we have in verses 23 through 27, we hear about Damascus, the capital of Syria. It was conquered by the Assyrians in 733 to 732 BCE, and it actually becomes the center of a province ruled by successive empires. We don't know that much about its history for the next several centuries, but it isn't on that list of nations, you know, that's doomed to drink the cup of the Lord's wrath in 25, 18 through 26. So it's mm-hmm. again, probably a later addition to the collection. Also mentioned is modern Hama, uh, Hamath in the Bible, 4923, another Syrian city on the Orontes River between Damascus and Aleppo. Have you been there, Ben? 
I have not. I haven't been to Syria. The oh, okay. The the water wheels on the the nuri, as they're called, on the the Orantes in Hama are something to behold. They really are something to see. And I guess you know, I don't know if you can get a visa to go to Syria these days. I was not there right in two thousand eight, ten, something like that. Maybe twelve. I can't remember now. And there's also an, a city in, in northern Sierra where I thought this time I thought, well, I don't, I didn't go to this place. I didn't. I should have studied the Bible before I went there. <laughs> this <laughs> is Tel Erfad uh, today, which is Arpad anciently, about 25 miles north of Aleppo. And these places, Hamath and Arpad, were destroyed by the Assyrians. You also have an oracle of judgment against the Arabian tribes, which I thought was interesting. And I know we're getting mm-hmm. to Edom. We're going to talk about Edom. Yeah, Esau. Yeah. It's interesting, I think I mentioned this once before, that in the Islamic tradition, the Prophet Muhammad is thought to come out of Arabia. And this is the, you know, between the whole story of the advent of Islam happens between Mecca and Medina. But some scholars today, this isn't uncontroversial, but some scholars are saying this is all happening around Petra, right? Which is southern Jordan, which is right around, this is the same Edom, right? Where the rocks are mm-hmm. red, much yeah, like red. southern Utah. Right. Uh, Edom means red. We have Bel, of course, in chapter 50, which I, I didn't realize is actually Marduk or Merodach in the Bible, right? And there's a temple, there's a temple of Baal in Syria I visited. Well, okay, there was the ISIS destroyed it. It was there when I, when I was there. Baal and, is the title, meaning like Lord or Master, and then Marduk is his name. But yeah, Baal would have been the title applied to Marduk. Yeah. And so another thing we've talked about how the Assyrians aren't coming from the north to get me, right? And nobody's coming from the north to get me. I don't know. Canada seems pretty friendly. What do you think? <laughs> I know we have some Canadian listeners out there. Let us know your intentions, please. <laughs> so the thing is, this imagery, right, of the foe from the north mm-hmm. that from chapters 4 through 10 now gets transferred to the enemies of Babylonian, the Medes and the Persians. Yes. And so that's how it's done. See, it's already done in the Bible, and now we continue to do the same. That's how it's done. So one of the things in chapter 50, Christopher, that I want to point out is this return in verses 4 and 5 to the theme of weeping. So it says, In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the people of Israel shall come, they and the people of Judah together, they shall come weeping as they seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, and they shall come and join themselves to the Lord by an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. So. We're going to get into this more here coming up with Lamentations, but this theme of weeping is all throughout Jeremiah. You know, he's called the weeping prophet. And the way that the people are expressing their trauma and their horror at what's going on with the destruction of the temple and the exile is through this practice of mourning and then weeping. You know, we talk about crying as sort of a natural reaction to sadness, right? But crying can also happen at other times, even when you're like very happy, right? People can cry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, either way, we're looking into the soul. So I brought up last time the talk that I gave that I mentioned some of the symbolism about crying and how the eyes are that window to the soul and then tears crossing across that threshold is sort of an an indication of information being transmitted from the internal to the external. Anyway, this is what's happening with the people as they are trying to process their 
trauma and the horrors that have happened with this exile as they're trying to find their way back to the Lord, trying to see how they can return to what they once had. And that's important. It's important to mourn. And we have the entire book of Lamentations to, to go into that, so I'll wait. Yeah. So I'm going to go over to verse 7 now. And verse 7 says, All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, We are not guilty because they have sinned against the Lord, the true pasture, the Lord, the hope of their ancestors. This is sort of paraphrasing or quoting the conquerors. And this is a common ancient motif where the conquerors are coming. And not only is it the conquered in this case, from the Deuteronomist tradition that are saying we're being conquered because of our sin, but the conquerors themselves are making the claim that they are being sent by God. In fact, when I read this, I remembered a quote, and I had to go look it up to get the right wording, but a quote from Genghis Khan, or at least he's quoted as saying that he was sent by God to punish the people for their wickedness. Here's the quote, I am the punishment of God. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you, right? So even these conquerors that come and commit horrible atrocities often will say that they are sent by God. And so this just sort of feeds that idea that these things that are happening at the cause of them is the wickedness, the sins of the people. Again, that's just another point to what we were talking about earlier with the Deuteronomist view. Yeah. And so now we have the Medes are again, and the Persians are north of Babylon, and they're going to be that enemy from the north. And what happens? The Medeans join the Persians, and they actually defeat, together they defeat the Babylonians in 549 BCE. Now, that's in verse 5111, chapter 51, verse 11. In 15 through 19, you have some verses that, again, are borrowed from another part of the same book. These come from 10, 12 through 16. And then 20 through 23, I thought it was interesting they address Cyrus. Now, we mentioned, I think, in a previous episode, Cyrus the Great. My kids have been going through, as homeschoolers, they're reading through the Greco-Roman classics to begin with, and then through medieval and Renaissance stuff. But the each year, when when we start Greece, they read the education of Cyrus. And the point of that is that Cyrus was the model Greek. Now, he's not Greek. That's the funny thing about it. But he's the model for what it means to be Greek. And just like Cato is the model for what it means to be Roman later. Hmm. And so I thought that was interesting that, that this non-Greek is the model of how to be Greek. And so he's thought to be just a great king and a great man. And he does, in fact, let the people go back to Jerusalem. Once he takes over Babylon, then the Israelites are allowed to go back home. Now, I have to give a shout out to Herodotus, Ben. You've been reading Herodotus at my recommendation. Perhaps you finished. Have you finished? Yeah, a while ago. Okay. Here we have in verse 5127, there's a people called Minni or Manaya. They live on the so south of Lake Ormia in modern northern Iraq. Ashkenaz, probably Indo-European people who live near our modern Armenia, and these people these Ashkenaz people, were identified by Herodotus as the Scythians. Just had to say that because Herodotus was mentioned in my footnote. And the Scythians are some of the first horse archers that come from the Asian steppe to invade, and they are 
instrumental in the downfall of the Persian Empire. Later. Yeah, I mean, if you can ride a horse and yeah, shoot a bow and arrow, I mean, it's devastating. Yeah, yeah, that's something that later on becomes part of what is taught as part of a traditional classical Islamic education. The you know the this is outside the classroom, of course. So, Ben, my point in bringing up Herodotus is that it's another ancient source. So, for people who have never read another ancient text, there are many people who haven't in today's world. This is a failure of our education system. This used to be something that everybody did in America. And in fact, they did it in the original Greek and Latin. You can't do better, I think, as a starting point than Herodotus, the first historian, right? The father of history, the father of sociology, the father of travel logs. It's just, and it's just great fun. It's fun to read. Mm-hmm. Ben, the only other thing I have for this week's reading in Jeremiah, there are a couple of linguistic notes. One is a small thing just here in the last chapter, and this is what reminded me of the earlier thing. So I'll just dispense with this small thing. There's a verse here, verse 7 of chapter 52 mentions a wall in the NRSV translation that isn't in the Hebrew. And the King James doesn't have a wall either. So good job, King James translators. But the thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit more is you mentioned, I don't remember if you actually mentioned the unknown gods. One of the things that Jeremiah says is that the people are worshiping gods that they're, I I say unknown gods. He says gods that your, you know, forefathers didn't know. Didn't know. They didn't Mm. know these gods. And this reminded me, you know, I taught Islamic ethics in my college teaching career. And in Quranic ethics, the thing about Quran is there's no actual word for, you know, what's right or wrong. What it actually says in the Quran, the most famous verse is verse 3104, be a community who forbids wrong and enjoins what is right. But again, there's no word in in pre-Islamic Arabic and up until the Quran, right? Even in the Quran, it isn't until the Muslims come into contact with Greek philosophy that there is a word for right and a right word for wrong. What you get instead is known. So that would be ma'ruf. And then there's munkar, which is the term is actually cognate with the Hebrew. All these words in Arabic and also in Hebrew, they come from, the nouns come from verbs. That's how we think of it. And so the, the verb that this comes from, it actually is cognate with a Hebrew verb that means enemy. Mm. It's the thing that's denied. Familiar and unfamiliar. Yeah, I mean, familiar and denied, right? So sure, it's interesting okay. because if I compare in Greek terms, this is like nomos. It's not like the idea we get from the Romans of lex, where you actually write something down. It's the, the nomos is more like culture, you know, it's more like mores, the mores of society. Mm-hmm. So we talk in terms of mores and, and not necessarily the commandments. Now, again, I don't know if that's exactly what's going on here. I'm not saying it is. But it reminded me of that. And so just thinking in terms of this being an even more ancient text than the Quran, it made me wonder. It made me wonder. And anybody can do the word studies to find out. Anytime you see good, bad, right, wrong, just, unjust, these terms that really need to be defined out. And philosophers have spent 2,500, 3,000 years (laughs) arguing about what these terms mean. Riley and I have an episode coming up on justice. We're recording this coming week where we'll continue that conversation. But you can always do a word study and find out, even if you don't read Hebrew, by you know just Googling the chapter and verse plus interlinear, and then open up Bible Hub will probably show up as the top result, and you'll be able to see the Strong's number and click on it and find out the lexical range of that word, meaning the different translations that are possible. And you'll also be able to see every verse in the entire Bible where that word is used, 
And you'll notice oftentimes that the translation is not always the same. It depends on the context. Christopher, I'm glad you brought up the theme of justice. I was actually going to go back to chapter 51 and talk about a couple of verses on okay. this topic. And you also said, yeah, you and Riley have been working on an episode or two on justice for contemplation. But in chapter 51, verse 36, we get this, therefore, thus says the Lord, I am going to defend your cause and take vengeance for you. Right. So this is along with the phrase we find at other times in the Bible, vengeance is mine. Right. Then we go over to verse 56. And we get at the end of verse 56, for the Lord is a God of recompense. He will repay in full. And this is a concept that we've brought up previously in podcasts, but the idea here being that it's our demands for justice that the Lord wants to satisfy. When those demands can be satisfied, then we have forgiveness, we have repentance, we have restoration. The Lord will repay in full. This isn't a vengeance justice. This is a restoration justice when everything is in its proper place. And that's one of the definitions of justice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll, we'll cover more in that upcoming episode. Yeah. There was actually a talk in conference, just this session that we listened to before this from a sister, and I forget her name, that talked on this concept. And she talked about forgiveness. And she mentioned the story of Abigail and David and she talked about how forgiveness comes about when we can look to Christ and see that he satisfies our demands for justice, and that helps us forgive. And I think that's the concept here in chapter 51, is the Lord is telling them they don't need to worry about vengeance. The Lord will take care of that. They just need to obey his commandments. Well, Ben, I think that brings us to Lamentations. But I don't want to leave behind Jeremiah without talking about the Jeremiad. I was wondering what, what got into me earlier in this recording a couple of times. And, and I remembered when I recorded an episode for Latter-day Contemplation with my friend Tracy Roberts, he said he listened to it after it came out. And he said he learned from it. He learned from what was said. And what was said was said by him and by me too, <laughs> but, but, but by him. And so I thought, where does this stuff come from? That How is it that you can learn from yourself, right? <laughs> and so, I, I was thinking about this. Apparently, Jeremiah inspired me into giving a couple of brief Jeremiads, something like that. This is what we call these kind of, what, what did you call them, roasts? I wasn't trying to roast anybody. I was, you know, calling Is that what all, a Jeremiah is? Well, it's the kind of speech that Jeremiah gives, right? Here's a dictionary <laughs> definition. A long mournful complaint or lamentation, a list of woes. Now, that was comma, okay. a list of woes. I didn't give a long mournful complaint. I did give a mournful complaint, and I did list woes. It's so, like an airing of grievances. <laughs> yeah, you know, the things I was saying that just occurred for me as Jeremiah's. So, there you go. Join me Sunday for Come Follow Me Study Group, where I may issue forth further Jeremiah's. <laughs> Christopher will complain about all the woes of life. <laughs> All the problems in the world that need to be solved. And, and by the way, if you're looking for that to happen, listening to our episode on justice, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but we are going to move the ball forward a little bit in this, in this upcoming conversation. Well, Lamentations, Ben. I know that you really enjoyed reading this. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Yeah, enjoyed may not be the right word, but it was… Well, you appreciated um, it. I appreciated it. That's for sure. Yeah. Lamentations, it's beautiful. It's deeply sorrowful. It's strange. 
It's strange. Can I say that? It's strange. Yeah. I'm thinking of the formal strangeness of Lamentations. It's something mm. that... Odd. Yeah, I don't know if it shows up really in, in translation necessarily, but the originals are acrostics. And mm-hmm. they're, they're sort of these, you know, one line per letter of the alphabet kind of thing. That Psalms did, yeah. Yeah, we saw some same, some same of that of in, in some of the Psalms. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't show up in the translation, but what it is is there each of the chapters in Lamentations is a different poem, almost certainly by a different author. Even though it's attributed to Jeremiah, this probably, you know, it's not likely that it was, it was written by him, but it's attributed to him because it's kind of in that theme and tradition and talking about those same sort of events and, and concepts. And so, yeah, especially chapter three gets even more complex in its acrostic structure. And so I don't know that we'll go into that a lot, but. Ben, you know, I've been reading Robert Alter's translation. And so that's a, mm. a Jewish, you know, Bible, a Hebrew Bible translation by a Hebrew scholar who's a Jew and the books are in different order. And so I don't, uh-huh. I don't turn the page from, you know, Jeremiah and find lamentations. That's not oh, what happens. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is something else. Again, there are different kinds of writings included in this book. And they're put in different orders, not only different orders between, say, you know, our Bible, which is the Protestant Bible, by the way. And, the, and that's because it's not Catholic. The Catholic Bible is different and the Orthodox Bible is also different. And so is the Hebrew Bible in, in terms of not only the order of the books, but books that are included or excluded. So when people say the Bible, I ask, which Bible? <laughs> which Bible? Can you tell me specifically what you're yes, talking about? Please. Yeah. I mean, it's a library, right? Bible means library. I got the sense as I was reading through Lamentations that this might be something that someone who is kind of craving a melancholy sort of experience, which I think is not unique to me, but you know, there's times when it's like, I just want to be sad, right? You just want to wallow in some sorrow for a little bit. Sad songs say so much. Yeah, Lamentations kind of does that. You know, sometimes you you listen to sad music or sometimes you read Lamentations, right? <laughs> yeah. And in the Jewish tradition, that's done once a year, liturgically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's they, important. They do Why? it on the 9th of Av, which is around in July and August. And it's a day of public mourning and mourning the destruction of the first and second temples. I think we mentioned that earlier. Now, that would vary, sorry, from year to year, right? Did you mean this year? Right. Yeah. So the, the same as with the Muslim calendar where Ramadan is going to move around in our calendar, mm-hmm. these are lunar calendars. It was Caesar who brought us the solar calendar. Yeah. So Lamentations for me, I got this alliteration that you helped me with, Christopher, is deliciously depressing, dark, and disturbing. Deliciously disturbing, dark, and depressing, I said. But I get oh, you. I, I went you. with deliciously depressing. I, I know. And yeah. it is. <laughs> It's deliciously yeah. disturbing, dark, and depressing yes. too. Yeah. Deliciously is the is the interesting. You know, one of these is not like another. The others, right? That's the part where you said you liked it. Sometimes you know, I sad say songs say so much because it's kind of it's kind of a craving sometimes, right? Yeah, like you kind yeah, of you, crave this when you when you're hungry for sorrow. You know, then yeah. what, what's the rest of the song? You know, when all hope is gone, tune in and turn them on. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. One commentator talked about the lamentation as being addressed to God so that he might feel the suffering of his people. An appeal to God's mercy, but God remains silent at oh, the end about of that? the book. 
So I love it. Lamentations does assume the theology of Deuteronomy, like we said, where sin leads to divine punishment and exile. It posits, though, that even if the punishment is deserved, it's unbearable. Mm. Right? It's unbearable by the people. They cannot bear it. So then we go into the first chapter of Lamentations, and we return to this theme of weeping. Verse 16 and 17. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my courage, my children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should become his foes. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm mm-hmm. going to eat a worm. That's the idea. So keeping with the weeping theme, then go over to chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my people, because infants and babes faint in the streets of the city. Mm. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? And they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. Mm. Powerful poetry. Yeah. That first line, my eyes are spent with weeping. I thought of Hannah. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we get the story of Hannah. And Hannah doesn't have a child. She wants a child. And she she cries. She weeps for days. Yeah. And then she's praying. And she's praying so much that it says that she can't even speak anymore. She's just moving her lips because she's completely emptied, right? She's spent. All of this has come out of her. And then Eli arrives and talks with her. And she says, I've poured out my soul. I have nothing left. I've given it all. I've prayed all night long, which we're going to get to here in a bit about praying at night. Eli says, you you know, your petition will be granted. And so then Hannah is filled, right? Literally, she's given a child inside of her. Yeah. So she's filled, becomes pregnant. So blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted right? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Book of Mormon adds, filled with the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Yeah, you have to empty yourself before you can be filled. And that is part of, I think, the literal and symbolic significance of the weeping and the crying is that emptiness, that emptying that is happening. It's giving information to the outside world, but it's also you know, expressing. Christopher, pre-recording, we talked about that word express and how it, you know, in, in English, this is typically talking about speech, but the implications of the, the etymology of the word are that it's squeezing, right? You talked about French. Yeah. And, and it's the same with squeezing something. Like if you squeeze an orange and the juice comes out, and that's the idea is that the tears are an actual, you're expressing something literally out of your body. Right. Yeah. And I think so the only time is, is the way that you're processing that trauma. I think the only time we use the verb that way in English is when we are talking about mother's milk. It is expressed. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Same idea. Yeah. You know, to express yourself really means to get it out of you, right? Yeah. People say, I don't even know what I'm thinking until I write it down or until I talk That's to true. someone, right? You have to say it. Oh. That's yeah, why I do these podcasts so that I can yeah. figure it out. What, what am I thinking? <laughs> what am I thinking about this? I got to I got to get it out to process it. And that's what lamentations is about. It's and, about processing this trauma. And maybe that's how we can learn by listening to our own podcast. 
Sure. Yeah, because what do we we didn't know we thought that. Here we are thinking it on the mic. Yeah. You know, Christopher, my sister lost her husband. My brother-in-law died back in December. And she has four little kids. And she's just gone through all of the grief. And I'm sure there's more to come. But she has been very open about it and also expressed herself, right, on particularly on Facebook with posts about all the things that she's feeling and thinking. And I I have to admit that when she first started this, it made me uncomfortable. Oh, sure. And I have grown to find so much depth and meaning to what she has been doing and how she has been processing this and how it has been so, I don't know if healthy is the right word, but appropriate, right? To, yeah. For her to be able to process this grief and trauma in this way. And again, yeah. that's what Lamentations is about. Yeah. And this is why shouting the sins from the rooftops, as we've, as previously mentioned on this podcast, is a mercy. Because look, Whatever it is that you're not willing to speak is running your life. Yeah. In the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. The monsters in the dark. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's why you're afraid of the monster under your bed or in the closet. Yeah, exactly. You've got to face that, right? You've got to face that. And how we do that is we speak it. We speak truth to power. And by the way, this is the reason, again, as previously mentioned on this podcast, this is the reason why God comes to Cain and says, what have you done? Yes. When he already knows what, what he's done. done. It's speak an opportunity it. for yeah. him to speak his trauma and he denies yeah. himself. Cain denies himself the opportunity to voice his trauma. Right. Again, shouting the sins from the rooftop is a mercy. Hey, look, I'm not looking forward to it on the one hand, but on the other hand, once it's done, it's done. And now you're free, Right. You're free. Mm. It's no longer in the closet. And by the way, what, what are you hearing? Oh, everybody else had a closet too. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what confession is about. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to go to verse 19 then of chapter two. It says, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. This is the idea that prayer is happening in the nighttime, like when it's darkest, and the pain, the suffering is hardest to bear. And when I guess many prayers would be offered, but the expectation is that the response from God will come in the morning, just like the sun rising, the light coming, right? The light, the day following the night, the light following the darkness that God will respond in the morning. So that's the idea here is that you cry all night long and then the the answer comes. Yeah, I don't know I don't know about the Jews and praying at night. Many of us know that Muslims pray five times a day. And we know that because it's one of the five pillars of Islam. So when someone's asked to define what is Islam, they go to the five pillars and you pray five times a day, therefore you're a Muslim. Of course this isn't true of all Muslims. It's hard to say anything true of 1.3 billion people and, and climbing because even some of the Shia combined prayers and only pray three times a day. The Jews pray three times a day. This is something that's maybe less known. I know the Muslims have supererogatory prayers that are done at night, right? Where you actually get up at night and pray. Okay. Not just get up at 4 a.m. or so. I mean, this isn't by the clock, right? It's according to the sun, but right. really early in the morning, but also in the middle of the night to pray. And some of you, you know, you may have done this, prayed in the middle of the night when 
all is still and everyone is sleeping and it's quiet and, and it's just you and God. Yeah. I left out the, our own tradition. In the Christian tradition, it's not in our Latter-day Saint tradition, but in the Christian tradition, monks got up in the middle of the night to pray too. And they also got up very early in the morning to pray. The prayer cycle of set prayers, of, of prayer times, right, goes throughout the day and night. I wonder right. sometimes how these pious people sleep. I would have a hard time. <laughs> I have to get, you know. But then who knows? I haven't done it. Maybe somehow you can run and not be weary and walk and not faint if you do all these prayers, you know. Maybe if you go to bed when the sun goes down, it's not as big a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Whereas with our, our lighting capabilities in modern times, we don't go to bed when the sun goes down. Touche. I do read until one o'clock in the morning. So, I'm going to go to chapter three, verse 21 through 24. And here is where we get some glimmer of hope within Lamentations. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love, there's chesed, Christopher, steadfast love. Yes. Loving kindness. Which also is loving kindness, is the love, the kind of love that a husband has for his wife or a bridegroom to his bride. Or a God for the his, Lord to his people. Right. Yeah, God and, his people. and it's, it's a form of grace. It can be translated right. grace, yeah, a, a feminine form of grace, speaking archetypally. Yeah. It's a word with a, a very large sphere of, of meaning. And so there's all kinds of ways that you can contextualize. And it. one of the many so, more than four words for love in the Bible. Yeah. Sorry, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> yeah. And this so is something steadfast. Tracy and I covered on the episode recorded in the Song of Songs. Tracy wanted to talk about the four loves, and that's a good conversation. I actually held back from mentioning all the other words for love and the fact that only a couple of them occur most of the time. But there's something there. Again, it's how we read it. You know, somebody like C.S. Lewis gives us this insight. We take it. We run with it. It gets quoted. C.S. Lewis is the most quoted non-Latter-day Saint in Latter-day Saint general conferences. So most of us have heard of the four loves, right? So the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Like we just talked about with the response coming in the morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is sublime poetry. What translation are you reading, Ben? This is NRSV. Okay. Yeah. And that's versified. The King James isn't. It never is. Yeah, that's right. It is versified here in the NRSV. Yeah. I'm so glad you're reading it out loud. It has to be read out loud. Poetry has to be read out loud. Treat yourself and read this out loud. So now I'm going to go down to verses 31 through 33. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There you go. Chesed again. And listen to this phrase, Christopher. This really struck me. It says, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve. Oh, looks like God's shining through the cracks. Now look at that. So I looked here at the translations here of the word, and I don't remember what the Hebrew was anymore, but the willingly also could have been translated as deliberately. Good, right? even better. I mean, maybe or, the same. Or the, the literal translation is this is from his heart. Mm. Okay, so this is something that comes out of his heart. So I take this. This is in Lamentations, supposedly the Deuteronomist tradition, right? And you take that concept and you superimpose that upon the Deuteronomist idea that has been throughout all of Jeremiah about how God is punishing his people for their sins and all of these things that he's, he's doing to them and genocides that he's committing by way of the Babylonians. And you wonder, 
wait, is God not doing this willingly? Is God not doing this out of his heart? And the answer is What no. does that mean? He he was right. we forced his hand, see? <laughs> so who's you know, who's God? Yeah. Right? We we made him do it. It's funny because it doesn't take that long for your kids to tell you that it's not up to them whether you lose your temper. So again, who's God, who's the God? We yeah. made him do it or he didn't do it. Yeah. And you can take that either way on this. You could say, oh, you know, we made God do this. Or you could say, look, this actually isn't God doing this. He's These things aren't coming from God because he's not willingly doing this. This is just... It's just happening. It's just a fact of existence. Right? And this is without even bringing in the New Testament descriptions mm-hmm. of who and what God is. Right? Yeah. God is love. So here in verse 44, you have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. Mm. Okay, this is this is the poet talking to God, right? Telling God that he's wrapped himself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through this is the hiding his face that we the pavilion get. of his hiding place right? mm-hmm. from this, joseph smith that we get in in psalms we get in esther well sorry it isn't explicitly in esther that was a midrash that we got out of esther which is really fascinating in the context of the exile right yeah because esther's happening in the exile but he's covered himself in a cloud well what is that an allusion to? Okay, we're going to go back to Exodus where God is in a cloud. The people don't know him yet. They're trying to come to know him and have an understanding of him, but they don't know who he is yet. They don't have a concept of, of their relationship with him. So he's in a cloud. It's, it's this not defined thing. What is it? We don't know what it is exactly. Right. And so God has gone back into a cloud for them. They don't know him anymore. They don't know how to define him. They don't know what he expects of them. They don't know why things are happening the way that they're happening. Then we get in verses 55 through 57. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help, but give me relief. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. Yeah, I know that, you know, Jeremiah was tossed in a pit, right? And we know that anciently even, you know, among the Jews that this was thought to be written by Jeremiah. Christians, same, right? Written by Jeremiah. Scholars today, maybe not. But this does, again, the the language is symbolic. There are many ways in which we find ourselves in the pit. So it could be Jeremiah, it could be you, it could be me. And hopefully it's not you. But if it is, what what do we learn, Ben, about what to do? Fear not, right? Call on God. I mean, Step if you, number one. you go back to Exodus, right? The people call out, they cry out. And I think that's part of the frustration here within these poems is that they're saying we're crying out and you're not hearing us, right? Yeah. Are you there? Are you going to hear us? Are you going to respond like you did in Egypt? Yeah. When we cried out? And, you know, we do learn earlier in the Bible that God hears the cry of the oppressed. And yet here, the people feel like he's not hearing them. But they weren't hearing him or his prophets earlier, right? That's kind of the irony of it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So here's how Lamentation closes out, starting in verse 19 of chapter 5. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us these many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Amen. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us 
and are angry with us beyond measure. Amen, and God forbid. Yeah, so it it ends with that hanging, right? Mm. Unless you're angry with us beyond measure, it's almost a question, right? I don't know if, if listeners have heard que será, será, even if you don't know Spanish, right? Whatever will be, will be. When I say yeah. será, I mean, could it be? Yeah. 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 So one of the thoughts I had on sort of just overarching concepts that we, we talked about here is just how we, we look at our own religious tradition within the Restoration and, and Latter-day Saint religious experience. It seems to me that the Restoration and the concepts and, and principles and, and practices that we have within the Restoration are at the very least an attempt to respond to what we just talked about today, all the things that happened to the people. Right. The catastrophe of the destruction of the temple. What do we have? Like temple building. It's like a huge thing within our tradition. We're building temples and we're trying to restore all of these ordinances, even if they're not the exact same ones they have. The, the, the idea is there, right? Restoring all these ordinances, having people experience this. And then the exile and the scattering of the people all over. We have this spiritual conceptual gathering. The whole concept of the restoration, it seems to me, is a response to these kinds of things that we read within Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. These problems, these deep-seated ancient catastrophes, traumas of the Israelite people that don't seem to have been addressed after all these thousands of years, even though Within the Christian tradition, right? That's addressed by Jesus to a certain extent, but there's just all these lingering questions, right? And I think that that is one of the things that the restoration is, is trying to address. And for me, restoration goes all the way back to this time period. And it's right. something that's always happening. As I said at the end of the last chapter of Isaiah, we get that God is making present continuous active participle, right? God is making a new heavens and a new earth. It's happening. And the restoration is happening. And, and we talked about, I talked about how we can co-create that restoration. Right. Being part of it. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's Jeremiah 30 through 52 and all of Lamentations. Yeah. It's been a great conversation, Ben. We're going into Ezekiel next episode, Christopher. And what does Alter call this? The strangest book in the Bible. I mean, I thought <laughs> just when you thought it couldn't get stranger. His opening line, introduction to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is perhaps the strangest book in the Bible. I think that's what he said. I thought, really? Wow. Yeah, you thought Isaiah was symbolic. Just wait. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it and finding out what, what Ezekiel has to offer. Same here. Well, then we'll sign off for Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week. <laughs>